Welcome to the SajCast. I'm Mark Austin. And I'm Stacy Roberts. And we, we are, are the Sons, Sons of Joy. Joy. You're listening to SajCast 24. We're not supposed to do that part in stereo. <laughs> it's Our the 24th ever SajCast. This week's SajCast, in our new tradition, is sponsoring Women Helping Women. Makers of Empowered Women. Advocating support and options for safety. And educators of the community to support social change. Uh, Women Helping Women is a Cincinnati organization that has been around for decades. And they work to support women who have been victims of sexual assault, domestic violence, and stalking. There's lots of ways you can get involved in this fine cause. Uh, one of them is to adopt a family, which is a program they started back in 87 when we were still in high school. Wow. That, now that makes us old or the program old or both. <laughs> well, the fact that the program is still around means that it's got some real staying power. And what it does is it gives you the opportunity to provide donations for families of victims. Uh, and it started around the holidays when a, um, a former client of theirs asked if there were ways that, that they could make a donation um, to you know, families of the victims. Uh, you can also follow the traditional route and make a cash donation, and we'll have links to their website on our website for this week's episode. Indeed we will. And so this week marks the um, the end of our fishy season, as it were. The, uh, the season in which fish fries happened every Friday is all done now because Easter has come and passed. So we're back on meat and leavened bread. <laughs> Hooray! Huzzah! So you had an you had a uh, an Easter thing that went on because in my house traditionally what I do is I send my children over to their mother's house where there's a full on bunny and, and colored egg and candy kind of celebration and having been raised in the Jewish tradition Easter is a time where we eat flat crackers weep into our dinner plates and basically hide from the possible residual anger that any Christians might have about that unfortunate unpleasantness. So you got out on Easter. That's good. How'd yeah. that go? Um, I Well, for a bit. I, I worked most of Easter, as it turned out. But um, I did join Suzanne's family for their Easter brunch. I don't want to call it traditional because I don't know that it's actually been going on all that long. But um, it, was a, it was a brunch that everybody got together. And we had it at a place called Ron's Roost. And I don't know. Have you ever been to Ron's Roost? No. It has a 14-foot chicken on top. It's hard to miss. Well, that can't be bad. And I think after a season of fish... The 14-foot chicken stands like a beacon. <laughs> yes. So um, we headed over there for, as I said, for brunch. Now, Ron's Roost, with a 14-foot chicken on top, is famous for, well, surprisingly enough, chicken. So chicken wings and especially um, deep-fried chicken, as in the Kentucky fried variety. I was kind of uh, sad to learn that the brunch menu included the brunch buffet, which had its usual brunchy things in there, you know, everything from ghetto to scrambled eggs and pancakes and whatnot, uh, to the lunch menu. And the lunch menu didn't extend as far as the fried chicken. So I was, I was disappointed to learn that. And, um, I'm a, I'm a stickler for brunches that were, you know, my requirements for a brunch are that they were, they meet both breakfast and lunch. As I don't like showing up at a brunch where there's no lunch. There has to be a lunchy component or I'm just going to be grumpy. So uh, the good news is there were lots of things on the lunch menu that I. That but I it seems had, like but... it seems like this brunch included irony <laughs> in that, which is not a traditional lunch food, because despite a giant chicken out front, there was no chicken. 
too. Yeah, I, I mean, I had a hamburger and it was it was a very tasty hamburger. They also are makers of other um, local favorites like the hot slaw, which I don't know if we've talked about much here, but a, a hot slaw is not exactly the opposite of a coleslaw. I think we have we have <laughs> talked about it, and I think that it's so good that it's worth talking about again because it is slaw. And it's got that sharp vinegary tang to it, and they will put bacon in right in it. Yeah, it's a it's a finely cut cabbage that is um is it red cabbage? No, this is well this was white cabbage. I guess it could be if you like, but most people use the white. And they put it in a um a sweetened vinegar, a white vinegar that's sweetened usually with sugar, um, and it's hot. And sometimes uh, you'll get varying degrees of, of soupiness. This was actually a rather soupy one, so there was a great deal of, of that sugary vinegar mix. And just covered with bacon, uh, as it should be. So you get a little cabbage, a little bacon, a little tang, a little sweet. It's a nice mix, and it's hot. So served warm, it's it's a good way to go. So that was certainly uh, one of the high points of, of hanging out at Ron's Roost there. So uh, if anyone has not had the opportunity to try hot slaw, uh, give it a try. And you can, that's something you can make yourself too. It's not you don't have to be here to make it, <laughs> right? And and I think that the other thing that can go on now is that a year from now, you'll be able to tell us whether Ron's Roost at Easter time is really a tradition or not. Well, that's true, and and um, I will make make certain to head back and uh, throw down the fried chicken gauntlet to see if they compare to say the Greyhound Tavern or the Amish buffet way out in the in farm country there. Right, and because uh, those of you who are loyal listeners know that we're big fans of traditions, even if they're ones we make up ourselves. We did an entire episode on this, and I won't tell you which one. So you better go listen, and you'll see why discovering places to go eat and times of the year to go do it and weird mascots out front kind of appeals to our philosophy of traditions. But uh, but speaking of Easter, I guess you... Um, I imagine that, that Laura made some, you know, gigantic dish and there were plates everywhere and pots cooking up left and right because that's, that's probably how she rolls. Well, once again, you'd be wrong <laughs> because this Easter seems to be all about irony where the things that we expected didn't really happen. And if our Sajcast was still in the tradition of having, uh, being sponsored by intangible objects and or philosophical concepts, we might sponsor this one by irony because there was no chicken. In the shadow of the giant chicken, and there was not much cooking going on in my house, and here's why. I am dishwasher compromised. Which is kind of a long story, because when, when I was, a, you know, we were in our early 20s, and we lived in apartments, they often didn't have dishwashers, and so... Very often. <laughs> when I talk to my children about my, my own personal history, I call the years between, say, 19 and 26... The washing dishes by hand years. <laughs> and the first thing I did when I moved into my house was I went to look at the dishwasher to make sure there was one. I didn't care about whether the roof leaked or whether the windows were broken. I was looking for the dishwasher. And I've had a dishwasher ever since. And I, I'm i not one of these people who pre-washes their dishes. I throw the dishes in the dishwasher full. Per the manufacturer's specification. Absolutely. Uh, and so I, I, I rely on my dishwasher pretty heavily. Um, and the dishwasher that's in my house uh, turned 10. This is the year in which all my appliances reached double-digit age and had to be replaced. I bought a new stove, I bought a new dryer, and it was only a matter of time before the dishwasher went. And I remember when I was watching them install the dryer, I said, wow, I wonder what's next. Probably the dishwasher. That same week, the dishwasher quit working. So I ordered one from Home Depot. And Home Depot is, well, 
It's not on a list of Sajcast sponsors, because so far they have not really risen to the occasion, as it were. And so the first dishwasher came, ordered in February, showed up first week of March, and it was too big to fit under the counter. Um, so we sent that one back. And then I ordered a replacement that was extra small or designed to fit, and it was supposed to be delivered last Saturday, and it apparently fell off the truck and got busted before it got to my house. So now I'm on my third <laughs> potential dishwash, dishwasher for my house, cooking absent a dishwasher, turns into... Since February. Yes, yeah, since February. And I'm once again washing dishes by hand, which doesn't make me feel any younger. <laughs> Even though that's all I did, apparently, when I was You're in my You're not soaking in palm oil. I am not. <laughs> cooking in my house now centers around, what can we make that'll fit in one pan that we can eat on paper plates? So we've had things like crockpot macaroni and cheese. We've had mashed potatoes that you can buy at the store and just microwave them and they come oh. in their own, they come in their own <laughs> no, container. No, no, no. It's, it's, this is not a good week for food porn because the best thing I can say about the best thing I ate this week is that it fit in one dish and I didn't have anything to wash when it was done. I had, I had a close call with my dishwasher this week too, actually, as it turned out. I just, I just remembered it was, uh, it was not producing clean dishes in the way that you would expect a dishwasher to do. And so, you knowing that you had thrown yours out, I was cursing mine and saying, ah, I'm going to throw you out too, you no good so-and-so dishwasher. Uh, but then after some investigation, I, I took apart the uh, the grating and noticed that there was a, a bit of plastic that had stuck up from one of the drip vents and was holding the spinny bit from spinning. <laughs> Having removed that, it seems to be performing much more admirably. Well, and I'm glad that your story ended that way because originally... When the dishwasher broke, I did what the men in my family should have done historically to keep from being killed in unfortunate accidents. I said, the dishwasher's broke, let's get a new one and get someone to install it. And Laura didn't really like that idea, and so we spent quality time as a couple, pulling the di- taking the counter apart, pulling the dishwasher out, trying to figure out where the problem was oh. for two or three hours on a Tuesday night. We got nowhere, and I kept I kept my eye on this electrical cord that just seemed to go into the back of the dishwasher and i thought well that's probably how i'm gonna die (laughs) (laughs) and so after a couple hours of getting nowhere i was like so now we can go buy a new dishwasher can't we and she finally did give up but it's good to know that you were able to find the troubleshoot the problem and fix it well this was inside of the the little compartment this was not disassembling my my entire uh countertops oh that's good so you never had to, to uh tell your significant other Hold the thing up while I crawl under it and see what's jamming it from the inside. Not not in the kitchen, anyway. And there goes our family rating. da All right. All right. Well, Speaking of family ratings, let's, let's move on to the family-friendly portion of our podcast we like to call The Interview. The Interview. This week we have another celebrity chef. That's right. We are blessed with a celebrity chef, Diane DeMeo. Uh, she has been on the Food Network's Chopped, which is one of my favorite shows, and uh, she has most recently been on Anthony Bourdain's The Taste on ABC. Well, yeah, she was on The Taste on, on Anthony Bourdain's team, yeah. Yes, and uh, she's... Team Bourdain, the last yeah. one on Team Bourdain. Yes, and so this is not an interview to miss, because she's going to talk about Anthony Bourdain, and... Who apparently every schoolgirl has a crush on, mm-hmm. in case you were wondering. And uh, Chef Diane's descriptions of food are what we like to call food porn worthy. Oh, they were epically yummy. Clearly so, someone who loves food. I mean, many, many times, you know, we'll talk to chefs and, and they will, they're caught up in the mechanics, you know, of describing how, you know, 
Make sure you you hit the saute pan at exactly the right moment. No, no, this was about the melty cheese. <laughs> well, and I think I think that there probably are results oriented. There are two different kinds of chefs. You know, there are the chefs who put everything on the plate for the benefit of the person who's going to eat it, and then there are people who there are chefs who make things that they go, "Wow, I'm going to eat that because yeah, it's that good, this, buddy." <laughs> yeah. So um, I think Diane DeMeo is a chef who cooks to eat, and um, and you'll tell you'll be able to tell that as you listen to our interview. Um, today on the Sajcast, we have a very special guest, Chef Diane DeMeo. She is currently, uh, or most recently, on The Taste on ABC. She was also a Chopped Champion. She is a noted restaurant chef, and she has her own line of pickled and fermented products. Diane, thanks for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. And uh, we have a pretty long list of questions for you. As soon as we started uh, doing our research on you and your background, all kinds of things came up. So let's start at the beginning. Tell us about your start in professional cooking and uh, what got you interested in being a chef, because that's a fascinating story all by itself. Um, yeah, you know, what got me interested in cooking quite some time ago was the fact that, and I always say this story, I first started cooking anyway, when so I was uh, probably um, under 10 years old for the farm help at our ranch. Um, that was my, one of my chores and responsibilities, and I always still cooked for my family because my mother uh, was working all the time, and I remember stepping on a box just to get to the cutting board. So this is things that, you know, this is vivid memories that I had of a child, but when I was engaged, when I was 18 years old, yes, very young, um, my fiancé used to tell me that my food tasted worse than peasant food. So I made it my mission to really learn how to cook good food foods, you know, not just for ranch help. Um, and that's kind of how I started. So every time that you cook something awesome, do you do you um, <laughs> think of this, this guy who told you your food was no good and say, take that? I think about things often about that guy, not necessarily food-related. Yes, take that. <laughs> little, little kicks and punches at him for sure. <laughs> well, you sure showed him. Yeah, I, I think I did. Yeah. yeah. Like, okay, so my food tastes like peasant food. Well, guess what? Now, look at me. Yeah. Just just turn on your TV and take a look, right? That's that's victory that's right, right that's there. Right. The peasants never had it so good. Yeah. 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 Bittersweet for him. Yeah. <laughs> um, I wanted to ask you about Chopped because that was um, – was that your first on-the-air on competitive cooking show? It, it was. Um, I hadn't been in the cooking industry for a couple of years before I went on Chopped, and it was kind of a, a fluke. And I hate, I hated competitions because I'm not competitive um, in nature. Not that that's noticed. You could see, obviously, by the taste, I'm extremely competitive, but I normally am not competitive in, by nature. So that was the first time in a couple of years I actually had a knife in my hand in a professional way, yeah, even on a show. Uh, and and I've, I've watched lots of chopped episodes. I was curious if you had any behind well for our listeners who who aren't fan, who haven't watched the show. Uh Chopped is a show on the Food Network. Uh there are three celebrity judges and Ted Allen who is the host. And what they do is they give you a basket of mystery ingredients, many of them weird or they don't seem like they go together, and you have to put together an appetizer, an entree and a dessert in a in a in a limited amount of time and there are four chefs at the outset and in each round Another chef gets eliminated until there's a winner, and the winner gets $10,000. So what I'm curious about is what's it really like 
when the cameras are off. Because my understanding is that you'll make your, your appetizer, let's say, and then you have to wait a pretty long time for them to judge and do all that kind of stuff. Is that is that what you found when you were on the show? Yeah, that's actually true. Uh, you Once you're done cooking, you walk up to your marks in front of the judge panel, who literally is about 10 feet away from you, and then you kind of have that moment of giving everybody the stink eye, and then you get ushered into a room. You're sequestered, which could literally be about three hours. I think it's probably changed because I was on season two, and they're now on season 16, so maybe it's a little quicker, um, but definitely you are sequestered between every single meal. And did you find when you were sequestered, you know, they show these little bits of, of the of the uh, competitors in the back room, did you guys really get along, or was there any hard feelings from the last the last go round? I think we pretended to get along, but we would all get a little snarky from time to time, and definitely talk a lot of um, cock up behind each other's back when they would the producers would take us into another room and 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 interview us about who's with us, why you think they should go home instead of you. You know, it was definitely smoke and mirrors. And what about um, your interaction with the judges or Ted Allen? Was there any anything interesting or funny that went on there? They kept us away from the judges for the most part. Um, Ted Allen was is very funny because you know he would sit in this little area on a stool with his lines, and they would be then the lines that you see every single day, and he'd be like, and. You are now, you know, you would go on and on and on for hours repeating the same sentences but in different ways. You are the next person chopped. You are the next person chopped. You are the next person chopped. And so I'm sitting there like, what the hell are you doing? Hours. And he would do it for each line. And literally, really, one line? Like, really, one line. It was hysterical. That's, that's pretty funny because I have noticed that you know, there are times where I watch the show and I, I alternate between saying, oh, poor Ted, because he's got to say the same thing over and over again. He doesn't really get to mix it up. He's got his stock lines. And then also I say, shut up, Ted, because I'm tired of hearing the lines yeah. over and over again, right? When you feel bad for Ted, it's kind of like, well, he, de- he doesn't get to taste the food. He doesn't get to do any judging. He's really kind of just the, the timekeeper. And if there's some sort of rules infraction, that's about the only time he has to he has to do anything. Yeah, he 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 doesn't get to taste the food. I'm sure afterwards they all taste it together. But on air, no, he doesn't get to taste the food. He's just he's just that thing that stands there. But you know, going into season 16 as a host of a TV show is really not bad, even right. if you only have one-liners. Yeah, that's true. It's a it's a good job if you can get it. It's a great job. Yes. (laughs) Um, And we also want to talk about the taste in a minute. But I think in general, one of the questions that we had for you is being a chef is a a typically male-dominated industry. And what you're doing, it seems, is you're taking it even to the next level because you're competing against these guys in a pretty tight pressure cooker sort of situation. What kind of issues have you encountered, you know, professionally as a chef and then as as a competitive chef? just from being a woman in that industry? For professional, and I think it, it, it has it, it, it definitely crosses over um, into the competitive or, you know, it's called the TV world. But for the professional end, generally speaking, I am not taken seriously within the first um, 
you know, 45 minutes when I walk in, in for a couple of reasons. One, yes, I'm a female, and, and they still have this idea or concept that females should be patriots. But it's also because I'm not, when I say typical female chef, the way that I look, I want to be very light on how I say that. But, you know, I'm five foot two. I'm 106 pounds. I have a different look to me. I wear heels. So, you know, again, that also helps play off of their reason for lack of respect because they think really, okay, now who, who does she think she is coming into this kitchen and that we're going to actually listen to her and take her seriously. Um, and that has always been a problem. And not to mention that most men think that they have done more, know more, and can do more when in fact it's kind of weird because domestically women, the ones who are in the kitchen to begin with and even to this day who make the meals. Anyways, my point is, is that it's been very, um, it's been a difficult um, road, but I think at this point I definitely um, have conquered those challenges because no one really gets in my way because I'll literally kick their butt. Um, and for competitions, it's the same way. They they take a moment uh, before they realize that I, I am going to rip them in half. And and when it comes to oh, working with yeah. a working with a chef in in a in a kitchen, not non competitive. Is there a point at which you know that you've won their respect? What does it take, or is it even possible? Is it uh, like there was a line from a TV show that said, "Well, they'll like me when I beat them," and is that is that what your experience is? When you win, then they go, "Oh, okay, you're you're more than just a, a girl in in heels." Yeah, I think there's the, when I know when I gain respect is when they turn around and call me chef. You know, because that's the title that we give each other in the kitchen. We don't say Diane, we say chef. And I know when someone doesn't use the term chef that they don't respect me. Oh, okay. Um, and then it, it takes, a, yeah, it takes a minute, but usually at, by the end of the few, few hours, they, they call me chef. And if they don't call me chef after a few hours, I turn around and say, you call me chef in my kitchen. End of story. Like, don't, don't even think about it. Perfect. Um, but I think... Also, when I can pick up the same pans as they do, or if I burn my hand off, then I keep on cooking for 20 more hours, or I cut my finger off, or if I just go through it and work with them and talk the same dirty, foul, you know, restroom language and make the same jokes after that, then that's where the respect, oddly enough, comes in. When I show them that I can do the same things and handle the same heat and pressure in the kitchen as they can. Okay, so can we talk about um, the taste for a second? So you were on Anthony Bourdain's team, and it seemed like you were a pretty big fan of, of Anthony's. So wh wh what was it like, you know, having to get that, that much quality time with him? You know, I have to be honest with you. It was definitely intimidating and frightening at the, the onset just because I am so enamored with him. It's just I, I think every girl has this high school crush on Anthony Bourdain. I don't know what it is. Um, but it, it, it was... It was surreal for me. He definitely is not the most talented chef, and I will tell him that, but he is by far the most interesting chef out there. And I, you know, it would be the same if I got to spend that much time with Jose Andreas. It, he's, he's up there. And I think it was something that I will take with me for a very, very long time. And my next dream come true is sitting in a bar having a beer with him. <laughs> That's my next goal. And if you hang around New York long enough, you're, you're, it's bound to happen, right? <laughs> yes, but also if I keep going in the direction that I'm going, 
then it's going to happen anyways because that'll just be my circle, right? I mean, that's my goal is to be in the same circle as people that I looked up to, you know? Yeah, and you're well on your way. So yeah. if, if we took Anthony off the table for a second, um, whose team would you like to have been on um, on the taste? Uh, Ludo. Yeah. Okay. That was we I had a, we had a bet beforehand, yeah. so <laughs> yeah. What was it? Who'd you think? No, that was I, I got that one right. So happy for me. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 For sure. I was also wondering about the about the moment when you were about to become a finalist, but well, you didn't know it at that moment. Um, and that that seemed like an incredibly tense and dramatic moment to the viewer. And I'm wondering, like, what was that really like for you? Was it was it as tense as it looked to us, or you know, were you standing around for 45 minutes while cameras got reset? No, it was it was that intense. It, it was literally that that it was every single moment of that show you, in my head would be I just got to make it in in the 16. Okay, I just got to make it in the in the 10. Okay, I just got to make it in the seven. Whew, you know, okay, okay, the four, I don't care, just take me to the four, and then, okay, take me to the three, and then, okay, the two, I mean, literally, it was, it was like that, and you didn't, you didn't do anything, you went to your hotel room, you sat, you ate, you concentrated, and then you got back up early in the morning the next day, that was, that was your life, literally, every single second, you were sweating bullets out of every orifice, I am not joking, it was constant sweating, constant sweating. Wow. Yeah. So I had a couple it, of questions. It's almost like. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Sure. No, I said it was almost like living in a in a in a in a private little town that that you were going to get killed off in. I mean, that's what it was like being <laughs> well, in a video game. A high stress town. And I got to say that that's actually good to know because um, when I watch these shows with people who are uninitiated to competitive cooking shows, they're like, okay, so you sit around and watch people cook on a time limit. Big whoop, you know. It's not like uh, running through right. fire or anything, but but it really is tense. It it really is a high stakes, high pressure environment, and it's not just something that's doctored up for the for the cameras or for the audience to generate interest, like some reality yeah. shows are. So I'm glad that you had that perspective right. that that you could share with us. Yeah, for sure, for sure. <clears throat> so I wanted to know if we could talk about Bootleg Farms for a second. Yes. <laughs> So um, this is Mark, and, and I'm, a, I'm a huge fan of, of pickles. I've been fermenting for a couple of years, and in fact, in the studio with us right now, we've got a five-liter uh, five cravat of uh, sauerkraut that's bubbling, and you may hear it burp behind us once in a while. <laughs> nice. I, I have a, nice. a lot of uh, a fondness for the, um, for the Bootlegs Farm line there. And I, I wanted to talk about, so it sounded like the, the, the girl on the farm was probably you. <laughs> is that right? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it is. So, so what sure. kind of what kind of things were you, were you making back then, um, or or were the, was the family making back then in terms of of uh, you know putting things up, as they say? Well, I because of my my background being Korean and Iranian, I grew up making. Um, we made our own yogurt. We made our own porshi, which is a Persian style, like a sour fermented relish. We Persian pickles, Korean pickles, Korean kimchi. Um, my neighbors were making moonshine with all of the fruit that were left over. <laughs> We've made everything, butchered everything. So, I, you know, this is everything. Um, and it was interesting because we just did it. You know, we had no reason not to do it. So we just made all this stuff. And I guess that's why it's called bootleg because it's just like under the radar, illegally made. And so what? Who cares, right? <laughs> um, but, yeah, no, we, I, I grew up making everything uh, fermented as a kid. And one of the things I saw that that really excited me was the uh, the pickled uh, green beans. 
And I've got a couple of jars yeah. of pickled green beans here in the house. Um, and I, I picked up the recipe from um, a gentleman in the, uh, in the foothills outside of uh, Hickory, North Carolina. So I'm, I'm wondering, where, where was your farm um, located? Farm, or we call it a ranch, was lo- is located um, in Lake Hughes, California, about 81 miles northeast of Los Angeles. Oh, okay. Yeah, it's in the High Sierra Desert. That's pretty country, yeah. It, it is. It's pretty red. I got to tell you, um, Lake Hughes is very redneck. I grew up uh, playing pool and eating chili size with um, bikers as a child. <laughs> you know. As every pretty child cool. should. As every child. <laughs> As every child should, yeah. yeah. Don't miss out. <laughs> this is how you know you've been raised right if you can play pool with biker gang. I'm telling you, it's true though, right? Oh, in terms, of, in terms of the products that you're putting out there, I mean, what's been the reception? Because pickles have certainly had a resurgence in the last year or two. I mean, even um, even the big boys are putting out, you know, what look like you know crafty pickles now. So, what what products are, are doing well, and, and um, what what have you experienced? I've experienced that my green beans, my traditional dills do far better than my Korean spicy pickles, but the Korean spicy pickles are now picking up because we're just hitting that that corner and we're turning into more, more bold and more ethnic flavors. Um, my jalapeno and escabeche, oddly enough, I thought would be a bigger seller, but now, again, it's slowly starting to turn that corner where people are going, oh, wait a minute, pickled jalapenos with carrots and onions? Oh, my God, this is amazing. It's very spicy, and I think we're learning how to enjoy spice a little bit more. Um, my Korean barbecue sauce is probably one of the most popular items that I have, in addition to the sriracha I make, um, which is, again, these these things are doing well. But So, so much of America, like Escobiche, is just unheard of. Like, I mean, literally an unknown thing. There's, there's a handful of restaurants here in town that have it, and, and by restaurants I mean total hole-in-the-wall taquerias. Um, you know, and, and they're usually right. homemade... And it's in a, a vat that doesn't look especially clean, <laughs> but it, but it's fantastic and amazing. Right, but it, right. it's just so yeah. Most people have not seen it or heard of it, so it's great that you're getting it out there. Yeah, I mean, because we're so used to you know when you go to like a food truck or a taco truck, they give you well the ones that I've gone to in a plastic baggie, mm-hmm. you know, a little bit of the jalapeno and the carrot, whatever. And it's so delicious, and we're used to calling them pickled jalapenos, but it just doesn't do it justice. Like if I want to sell something, I want to sell it by its true name. Yeah. You know, um, but yeah, I'm, I'm hoping it's going to pick up more as time goes on. I, I won't let it go. I, I, I refuse to let this go. So I keep pushing it and pushing it and pushing it. For sure. Thanks for for talking fermentation with me. That that was awesome. <laughs> um, now you're, okay. you're something of a, a bloody mary affectionado. We understand. Yes. Um, what's what's Not in that your, I'm an alcoholic, but yes. <laughs> what's in your perfect bloody mary? I've had several that I find perfect, but the one that I, I for me, would have, um, pick a peppa. It's like a, it's, mm-hmm. it's like a Jamaican um, style Worcestershire sauce, um, but it's, it's delicious. And I think a little bit of horseradish, pick a peppa. I do a little bit of Tabasco. It has to have some lemon juice or acidity. I, sometimes I'll use lemon juice. Good vodka and tomato juice. I like celery seeds in mine as well. Um, to me, when those are combined correctly, it's like that my mouth is watering right now while I'm talking about it. <laughs> ah, um, it's like a delicious, just so good. It's just so good. Oh, It's like a michelada, but, you know, so good. 
Um, this in, I, I think Walters in Brooklyn in Williamsburg has probably one of the best Bloody Marys and also the standard um, in the meatpacking district has an amazing Bloody Mary. Those are the two so far top of the list. That's good to know. Um, and, and since we're, uh, we're heading down this road, we, whenever we interview um, chefs, we've come up with a, a list of kind of shorter questions where we want to know about the kind of food that you like. And so the Bloody Mary uh, intro, we'll just go <laughs> ahead with that. Um, so what was, the best, okay. what was the best thing you ate this week? The best thing I ate this week uh, actually was something I made, unfortunately, um, is my water kimchi that I was standing over the sink yesterday eating it with spoonfuls of rice. That's the best thing I've eaten this week. <laughs> what was your favorite yeah. food as a child? Uh, that would have to be my mother's, um, it's a cross between two things, fried uh, whiting with collard greens and my mother's uh, pepper steak, which was like chunks of beef braised in the soy and garlic with really spicy long hots cooked for hours. Wow, that's not what we think of when we think of pepper steak. That sounds much much better than the last pepper steak I had. That's right. Yeah, it's delicious. Oh, it's spicy. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And so what, what would you say your, your favorite comfort food is if it isn't one of those two things? Kimchi chige. Okay. Okay. Yeah, what? a bowl of overly fermented kimchi soup with pork and tofu noodles and rice cake. Yes. Well, and here's a Lots question. I say is, yeah. <laughs> here's yeah. a question that just occurred to me. How often do you spend? Uh, how much? How much time do you spend actually eating over the sink? <laughs> um, a lot, a lot. When I'm when I'm single. <laughs> Or when I'm home by myself, every meal is spent eating over the sink. <laughs> yeah, I was, I, and here's why I ask, because when I, in the same circumstance, when I'm left to my own devices, my children aren't around to see me, yeah, I'm eating over the sink. And I was thinking that, oh, well, chefs don't do that. They, <laughs> they cook properly, and they, they decant things, and, and they plate stuff. And they, even when it's just them, it's really nice to know that, that you can just eat drippy stuff over a sink like everybody else. Over the sink or with the refrigerator door open right out of the container while I'm standing in the refrigerator <laughs> or in front of my computer. Even but better. usually in the refrigerator or over the sink is, is where I eat. And I do drink out of the, the bottles into the fridge. So anyone who comes over as a guest know my lips have been on that bottle. Yes, <laughs> <indeed>. <laughs> You're a walking bacteriological nightmare. I'm a walking dude is what I am. <laughs> so this next one's yep. kind of a two-parter. So, so the first part of it is, um, what do you what do you like on on a slice of pizza? And because you're in Gotham, um, you kind of have a at a disadvantage. But you know, what's what's your favorite pizza there? Because you've got you know all the world's best pizza there. I vacillate between two, but generally speaking, I'll have a slice of cheese pizza with extra cheese, and then I look to, I put either uh, if I I'll get a slice of salad and put the lettuce on top of that. That's like one of my favorite things to do. And sometimes I'll do the whole shebang with the pepper, sausage, onions, olives, mushrooms, and the extra cheese. Okay. But it's off the knot. That's it. Stacey should be glad. That's his standard order. So. Yeah, my, that's my standard order. <laughs> <laughs> Made for eating over it's the... It's so good! That's right. Yeah. And where do you like to get it? Um, it depends. I, I have a, a few favorite um, spots that I love. Roberta's I love, um, but... Honestly, when I'm just down for getting dirty and greasy and have that bright orange lipstick, I'll go to the low. I don't give a 
I don't care, care where it is, who's cursing. I go and I just grab a slice of pizza from any old pizzeria. I walk in the door. I don't care. As long as there's not a lot of oregano and there's not too much tomato sauce, I'm good. Uh, what do you put on your burger? I like a fried egg that is like loose egg middle um, and um, bacon and cheese. And I like it medium rare, yeah, with a nice squishy stuffed potato bun. That's what I like. Good burger. Yeah. Is there a food that you can't get anymore easily that you really miss? Yep. A chili size. Really? I, I, you know, I haven't found that for years, especially in New York. You can't get a good chili size. I grew up eating that, and it's one of my favorite things in the world. I just love it. And um, is there a food that that you can't resist, even if you've just eaten 20 minutes ago, and somebody brings this food in, you're going to have to have some. I would say yes, and that would be a crispy fried tater tot. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> That's decadent. Just, who, who can resist a tater tot? Not, not us. <laughs> we have yet to meet anyone so far. Yeah. yeah. And then uh, here's a question. Is there one dish that you're known for uh, that your friends and family Anytime that you're over, they say, you've got to make this for me. Yes, and it's really weird. It's a, Ironically enough, it's a red velvet cupcake with cream cheese icing. And I don't, I don't bake that much anymore. I used to be a pastry chef, but I don't do it that much anymore. But my red velvet cupcakes were like crack. And that's the one thing I always get asked for. Okay, so... Um... I was just read, I was reading your blog the other day, and I wanted I was wondering if you wanted to expound on on this notion that you had of of kind of foodies and groupies because I know I've run into this a lot, and then we're in Cincinnati, which is not you know the, uh, the the metropolitan that everyone thinks of a food, but we certainly have lots of trendy restaurants that open, and uh, and uh, your post kind of spoke to me, so <laughs> I was wondering if you could expound on that notion for us. You mean the one where I was on my soapbox talking <laughs> about foodies and groupies? Oh, they're all the on your soapbox, aren't they? Yeah, I'm really always on my soapbox. I carry my soapbox in the car, by the way, so every time I need to rant and rave, I just pull it out and step on top. Um, it's a mental soapbox. You know, it's really um, discouraging and enraging to me because there are really, really, really good chefs and some that we might not know about, right, that that, that really can make some amazing food. And then you have these jerk-offs, you know, that I call the foodies and groupies that because they read it in a magazine or someone said something about it, they have to go visit these restaurants and sometimes they're overplayed, they're large, they're thematic, or they're, you know, name brands but don't really go in the kitchen anymore and they pump out these foods. There's a line to get in, the reservations you can't get by, but when you finally do get in, you sit down and you eat the meal and you say, what, I just spend $300 on a piece of caca? Like, what is this and why do you even bother doing this? But people encourage this behavior because they're groupies and foodies that they think they're like self-proclaimed foodies. You see, I'm like, that was one breath. That was really one breath that was really <laughs> enraging for me. Um, they just, they, and they, they walk around, oh, yes, we went to so-and-so and blah, 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 blah. So they keep on passing this on to other people to, so they believe that this is a great place to go. And it's disgusting because the food is horrific, horrific. And it, it's been, and they charge exorbitant prices for it. And I, it really pisses me off to no end. Well, and yet, and then they, and then they walk around, yeah, and then they have an attitude as if they know the difference between good food and bad food, but yet they can't discern because clearly they're going to a place that serves crap. <laughs> right. 
Exactly. There you go. That, that right. was, so that we're gonna was we're gonna we'll, we'll ease you off your soapbox. <laughs> Are there any charities charities or or causes that you uh, that you support? Um, yes, I do. I anything that has to do with animals, I'm always donating to. Um, I have a big heart for animals. ASPCA, I'm always doing stuff with. Um, as well as uh, anything that has to do with battered women and children, I just um, donated recipes to a, a cookbook for a great cause that Rick Bayless is in. Um, it's being developed in Mexico, but it's being sold here in the U.S. with pairing foods with Mexican wines, and it's for children's societies, it's a nonprofit. So those are three big things that I always deal with, um, children, women, and animals, always. Okay. Your career seems to be pretty well on the rise. So, what's next on your on uh, what What are your plans from here forward? Uh, I have, which I um, I don't know when it's rolling out, but there is a wonderful, huge YouTube show that's being produced and should be rolling out. I hope in the next couple of weeks. A channel, great cooking, Diane being crazy as herself. Um, that's coming up as well as I have, um, I'm the executive chef for the 2013 uh, Red Bull Music Academy here in New York City, which is going on at the end of April through May. I am also producing a food and wine festival with TLC in Mexico. Our flagship launch will be in Polanco in 2014, February. It's going to be huge, huge. It's going to be great. Uh, And I think as well... Well, what else do I have going on? I don't know. That's quite a bit, isn't it? Oh, and my pop-up, Hooves and Teats, um, which will be coming up next month. Um, no tail. This one will be Korean tapa style on dim sum carts. So those are the, the, the most recent things that are coming up. It sounds like it's keeping you busy. It really is. It really is. Yes, for sure. Well, hope you remember us when you're when you're even bigger and famouser. Yes, we'll want, we'll want to have you come back because... Um... Of all the chefs that we've interviewed, your descriptions of food are really the most titillating so far. Um, it's really exciting. <laughs> it really, it's really exciting to listen to your enthusiasm about food because that's that's how we look at it, and um, it's nice that uh, that chefs at your level share our passion. <laughs> yeah, and and maybe I'll uh, if you guys could, I'll send you over some pickles at one point when I can have a moment to sit down and. You can give me your feedback on my fermenting process. We'd love We'd to. Love do that. to yeah. that would be great. We um, may beat you and just go to Dean and yeah. Deluca tonight. <laughs> yeah, I, th- or, I think we may just go ahead and order some anyway, just to get started. So um, I think that that's the end of the interview. So I uh, just wanted to thank you very much for coming on the show. And thank you for having me on the show. Thanks, Chef. Yes, this was great. Thank you very much. And that was our interview with the delightful Chef Diane DeMeo. Uh, one of one of my favorite interviews so far. I'm left wondering why I just ate lunch. That was not a good plan. That's why I have to go eat a second lunch now. So that takes us to uh, the last section of our Sajcast this week, which is our food porn section. Roll the theme. All right, so uh, I will talk uh, not about Ron's Roost, uh, although it was a pretty good meal. But the best thing I ate this week was actually from a restaurant that we've mentioned, although I don't think we've talked about eating there, a restaurant downtown called Nada. So Nada is a Mexican restaurant, uh, really squarely in downtown, just a, a block or two off of uh, the famous Fountain Square. It's um, it's generally pretty busy. We uh, we ended up there kind of uh, early on the on the lunch menu, 
And so we were able to get in, uh, Suzanne and I were able to get in and get a seat pretty easily, but uh, oftentimes we contemplate going there and, uh, you know, the, the line is really just horrific. I'm not one to generally wait an hour to get in somewhere. So food porn. So the, uh, the items of particular interest, we, uh, we started with a, the chips and salsa trio, which were three different salsas, kind of their traditional red. There was a green and, um, kind of a creamy, chunky corn one. And they, they were all, I have to say, quite spicy. In fact, uh, so much so that I ordered sour cream to go to complete the end of the chip cycle because I was a little bit on fire. But, uh, but you know, it's a good sign when it's, it's hot and you're like, man, this is really hot, but I can't stop eating it. So that's a good sign for, uh, uh, praise of their chips and salsa. But what I wanted to mostly call attention to was their tacos. So we, um, we could not decide between us which tacos to get. So, uh, we thought it would be a nice couple thing to just share some tacos. So I've got a couple pictures up here that you can enjoy of, um, the two tacos that we ended up ordering. One of them was a Baja fish taco, which was a fried uh, hake, Baja style, with guacamole. They had some uh, some nice cabbage on there, a little bit of lime, some pico de gallo. And these were mighty, you know, fist-sized pieces of fish inside of a little taco. So it was, it was ample. You could have a, basically a fish meal and then your taco with fish. <laughs> there was plenty to go around. So I, I think that landed on my side of the table, but again, we, we quickly switched. And Suzanne had the excellent forethought to order the crispy pork belly taco. Yes, that's right. Crispy pork belly on a taco. So this was a, a little slice of pork belly, probably two inches across. Um, and again, you can enjoy the pictures there. Um, it was served with some pickled peppers and onions, their, um, their Diablo salsa. Uh, of course, it had cilantro, guacamole, all those nice things on it. And um, as good as the fish taco was, the the pork belly taco was really hard to beat. As as most oftentimes when I've eaten something that is made of crispy pork belly, it was hard to beat. Well, and I can tell you that um, the best thing that I ate this week came from our pals at the Szechuan Garden. Oh, Szechuan Garden. Here's how it worked. Um, Laura was somewhere. I think she got called back into work. And... My oldest daughter was working at her job, and so Aaron and I were home alone, um, engaged in a, uh, a marathon. She's watching a TV show called Supernatural, oh. which is in its eighth or ninth season now, and so she decided that she had to catch me up, because one of the things that Aaron and I have done over the years is that we, we get addicted to certain TV shows, and we just have to watch them, and so now we're on Supernatural, and she was hungry, and she said, how about some Chinese food? So I immediately thought of Szechuan Garden because it has moved to the top of the list in Chinese food that I like. And the problem is, is that, as you know, listeners to the Sajcast know, that I prefer food that is pretty close to my house or easily attainable. And recently, there's been some question as to whether Szechuan Garden will deliver all the way out to my house. Ah. So instead of just picking up the phone and saying, hi, I'd like to place an order for delivery, I have to negotiate with the fellow on the other end of the phone. And it's kind of like this. Will you deliver to my address? And there's silence. And we're, our fingers are crossed. <laughs> and he says, well, that depends on how much it's going to be. How much? How, how big your order is. How big your order is. Yeah, if you want one chicken wing, you know, tough. And so I, I, I resisted the temptation to tell this man, well, go listen to my podcast. Because 
you don't know who you're dealing with. And I said, oh, don't worry. So I ordered from this place, uh, from Szechuan Garden, like I was a food critic trying to do an article. <laughs> um, I ordered, Aaron likes lo mein, so I got her lo mein, got egg rolls, spring rolls. I ordered beef with broccoli with white rice, and I ordered General, General Tso's chicken with uh, fried rice. And it's a good sampler. It was a good sampler, and it was a sufficient, a sufficiently large order for the Szechuan Garden people to consent to deliver to my house. I was going to say it may have been a sufficiently large order for them to consent to deliver to Louisville. Yes. <laughs> Challenge accepted, I say. So I. So what's important is is that is for our listeners because we are all about educating them. I have learned how to get people to deliver food to my house. Large quantity. Large quantities. And it gives you something that, you know, we could share this around. So uh, here's why Szechuan Garden is particularly good, in my opinion. The beef with broccoli was excellent. The broccoli was still crisp. Mm-hmm. The beef was still tender. There was there was lots of beef because normally, you know, the tendency is to try and hide the meat inside the vegetables. There were a, a good quantity of broccoli, carrots, water chestnuts. The sauce was good. It was an excellent dish. It went really well with the white rice. The General Tso's chicken, which you've had before, uh, the chicken was crispy. And if you're used to getting Chinese food off of buffets, which is something that we do quite a lot, the chicken dishes tend to be soggy. Everything tends to be soggy. Well, okay, I was trying to be nice. And so to get a General Tso's chicken uh, where the chicken is, is crispy is pretty remarkable. And there was a lot of chicken in there. It was like two chicken breasts worth. Um, it was really quite well done. The vegetables were done well. The sauces were not overwhelming. Um, the egg rolls were, again, crispy, and, and uh, the fillings were good. So there was nothing really to complain about uh, in that in that massive Viking-sized order from Szechuan Garden. And that was the best thing I had to eat this week. And there were no dishes, so everything just kind of went in the trash, and we were done. There you go. So Szechuan Garden and Nada, both, uh, both local institutions. And neither of us had to do any dishes after that. After either of those meals, quite right. Mission accomplished. So I guess that brings us to the end of our 24th ever SajCast. SajCast number 24. Sponsored by, sponsoring, Women Helping Women. Makers of Empowered Women. Advocating support and options for safety. And educating the community to support social change. Consider helping out this worthy cause. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time, unless, of course, the world is destroyed.